We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. 12, chapters 1 to 12 rather, the first 12 chapters, has done many signs signifying who he was, why he came, and revealing his glory. He turned water into wine. He healed a man paralysed for 38 years, healed him on the Sabbath. He fed the multitude with bread in the wilderness. He opened the eyes of the man who was born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. There were many signs to reveal his glory. But at the conclusion of all this public ministry and these signs that he did, verse 37, after he'd done all these in, the pre- in their presence, they still would not believe in him. The crowd was still asking back in verse 34, who is this son of man? The chief priests back in verses 10 and 11 were plotting to not only kill Jesus but also Lazarus, the living testimony to his signs. In verse 19 of chapter 12, the Pharisees were still opposed to him. We shouldn't be surprised because we were warned right at the beginning in chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 that he came to his own but his own didn't receive him but yet it is an astonishing rejection, isn't it? We think it's astonishing partly because we think if such miracles happened in front of us we would believe. But the Bible is not a book about miracle belief. And Jesus, in fact, is opposed to miracle belief. People who believe because they see miracles have phony belief. That is not real belief. That is not the kind of belief that God seeks or is in reality. We think that great miracles done in front of us would command belief. They don't. It's partly astonishing to us because we think, well, now, these are his people. He has chosen the people of Israel. He's prepared them by Moses and by the prophets and by their whole history for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah turns up and you would expect them to believe. But they don't. We think if Israel did not see his glory, then who would see his glory? How could you be expected to see it and recognise it? If the very people prepared for it couldn't see it, why, who will ever see it? But it's also partly because Jesus seems so harmless to us that it is astonishing that they rejected him. That is, he didn't come to judge them, he didn't come to condemn them, he didn't come to overthrow their government. Verse 47 we read, Verse 47, for, this pers- for the person who hears my word doesn't keep them. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus comes as the one who comes out to rescue, to save. He will one day come and judge the world at the end of time, for we will all one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But on this occasion, in the first century in Palestine, he didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn He came to rescue, he came to save. And if he came to rescue and to save, why were people to reject him? We're in our trouble, we're out beyond the breakers where we shouldn't be, we're feeling that we're swallowing more water than we're swimming over the top of, we raise our hand, somebody comes out to save him, save us, 
why would we reject them? Especially when the person who's coming out to save us is not just risking his own life, but in fact is going to die in order to rescue us. Why do they reject the person who has come to lay down his life for their salvation? Verse 46, Jesus says, I came, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believed in me should stay in darkness. In the dark, you're lost, not knowing the way to go, we're told in verse 35. For in the darkness of death and of judgment and cut off from God, we do not know how to live. Jesus came to rescue, he came to save as a light being taken into the darkness. But they did not want the light. Not only did Jesus come, but he was also sent. So verse 41, he talks of the one who sent me. Verse 49, he speaks of the father who sent me. And Jesus, never the rebellious son, always doing as his father wanted, always bringing honour to his father, he does not speak on his own accord, but he only says exactly what the father commanded him to say. For Jesus knew that his father's command is life. That's why whatever Jesus said is just what the Father told him. Verse 49, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life so that whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Consequently, when you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. And so Jesus can say in verse 44, when you believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. Verse 45, when you look at me, you see the Father who sent me. See, in a couple of chapters later, chapter 14, Jesus says, I, you know the way, and the disciples say, we don't know the way where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus, chapter 14, 9 says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. If you see Jesus, you will see God. If you believe in Jesus... You believe in God. There can be no separation between Jesus and his Father in heaven. There is no way of dividing God the Father and Jesus, God's own Son. Believe in one is to believe in the other. Reject one is to reject the other. You cannot have God without Jesus any more than you can have Jesus without God. There is no way to the Father except by this one. That is why the words of Jesus are so condemnatory. Oh, he comes to save. His purpose is to rescue. His purpose is to save. He doesn't come to condemn. But his words do condemn those who reject him. If you believe in him, you're no longer sitting in the darkness. But if you reject him, if you reject his words, that is his father's words, that is his father, then indeed you will continue to stay in exactly the same darkness 
And it's not just enough to hear the words of Jesus, not sufficient to be in the crowds listening to Jesus. You have to hear his words and keep his words, verse 47. As for the person who hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge him. There is a judge, verse 48, for the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last. It is because of his words, the words which he has spoken, the words that his father has given him to speak, that people will be condemned, condemned by the very words they heard but ignored. Because these were not just man's words, these were the words of God the Father. This is the word of God that is being resisted by the people at the time. And this word of God will stand against them on the last day and condemn them because they heard it but ignored it. Which raises again the question I started with, why do people reject him? If God the Father sent his son to say his words to his people prepared by his prophets to receive his Messiah, why did they reject him? when he came? Why didn't they accept him with open arms and welcome him? Why didn't they rejoice to see him? Why didn't they acknowledge him as king? And Verse 37 makes it clear that they didn't believe in him. Verse 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe in him. Even after his public ministry of signs are performed, even after he told them everything the Father had commanded, they rejected him. They wouldn't believe him. Now why is it? There are two answers in the text in front of us. The first answer is astonishing to our ears. It occurs in verse 39. For this reason they could not believe. It's not just that they wouldn't believe. We're told in verse 39, they couldn't. It was not possible for them to believe. Hang on, aren't all things possible to humans? Well, the arrogant think so. Is it not their responsibility to believe? Yes, it was their responsibility. But if they couldn't believe, can it be their fault, seeing they couldn't believe? Let's look and see what it says. Verse 38. Their rejection was to fulfil Isaiah 53. They wouldn't believe in him and this was to fulfil the words of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Isaiah 53 is the great and famous passage of the Old Testament predicting the death of Jesus in some detail. Predicting the death of Jesus as God's servant. The servant of God is going to rise up and astonish people. He's going to amaze people because the servant of God is a weak, despised, rejected person, viewed as nothing and nobody, killed and discarded, so that when he rises up and is exalted, the kings and nations of the world will be astonished. They'll be amazed. They'll be astounded. Who would ever think that somebody who was of such little consequence could be of such importance? Of course it is predicting Jesus born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a nowhere, nothing place except for one thing. Jesus was born there. 
born in the time and raised in the time of the Roman procurator of, of say, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a footnote in Roman history of no consequence to anybody except he met Jesus. Born as a Jew whose description of his life, well, we know nothing about what he looked like. We don't know whether he was a tall man, a short man, a fat man or a thin man. We, I presume he just looked Jewish, whatever that means. There was nothing recorded of this man who had any attraction about him. And yet, this man is being spoken of this day all over the world, 2,000 years later. It was prophesied that the world would look at him and reject him and despise him, which is exactly what happened to him. He came, he came to his own, and even his own people didn't receive him. The Romans treated him with contempt. This is the king of Israel. Yes, the kind of king the Israelites would have, a complete dud, complete nobody. Can you imagine the joy the Romans had rubbing the Jewish noses into the dirt on the person of Jesus? This is the best king you mob can come with. Well, this is the best kind of king you mob can come with. We'll hang him up to dry as the king of the Jews. The Jews say, well, don't call him king. We don't have a king. We have no king but Caesar. They'll, they'll deny their birthright rather than face the idea of him being their king. He was a nobody. He was a nothing. He was a dud. He was a failure. But how astonishing. How amazing that this man who was despised and rejected and known as nobody and a nothing, who was killed and discarded, this man is the man who rewrote history. This man is the man for whom people 2,000 years later will leave Australia to go and live in Paris to share with others the great news of him, that even more people might know and be astonished. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, predicted it would be like this. And so Jesus was rejected in order to fulfil Isaiah 53, that nobody would see the arm of the Lord until it would overcome them. And for this reason, verse 39, they could not believe in him because it was God's plan that he would be rejected. It was God's plan that God's people would not accept the suffering saviour but rather would participate in causing his suffering. It is as Isaiah said earlier in the same book, chapter 6, the one that was read for us earlier. For there in chapter 6, Isaiah goes into the temple and sees the glory of the Lord and is told to, to go to the people with a message, a message of salvation, but a message that the people will reject, a message that will confirm them in unbelief. And Isaiah cries out, for how long? How long am I going to go and preach a message that will be rejected? He's a great job description, this one. I want you to take this job. I want you to go and tell the people about being saved and they're never going to listen to you. Hope you enjoy your career. It's a wonderful choice. Be a prophet of doom. How long? And the answer is, until the judgment is finished. It's an awful picture, Isaiah 6, isn't it? But when Isaiah was in the temple seeing the Lord's glory, notice what it is he saw. Verse 41 of John's Gospel here, 1241. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. For when you see the glory of God, whom do you see but Jesus? 
And what is the glory of God that you see in Jesus but him crucified? That is the glory of God. Now I need to make a a translation point here for you that's uh, important for you to know lest you confront a Jehovah's Witness with this text. The word Jesus is not in the Greek text at verse 41. The word is actually him. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. I need to warn you of that. The translator is completely right. That is, the him that is the his that is being referred to is Jesus. If you follow the, the language, the next uh, pronoun must refer back to Jesus and the translator is making it easy for you to see that connection. But it is not there in the Greek text. So I think I just need to warn you of that because when you challenge Jehovah's Witness and say, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, the Jehovah's Witness will pull out his Bible and it'll say he saw his glory. And their Bible at that point is correct. That's what the text actually says. And our translators have made it easier and simpler for us. They have not made it incorrect. But you need to know that, don't you? So that you don't get yourself caught at a bad moment. I speak as one who has been. <laughs> Got my Greek out and apologised. What else can you do when you're wrong? So... But it is right. He saw his glory. The glory of God is Jesus. And in particular, Jesus crucified. That is where you see the glory of God. Isaiah knew it was a message of forgiveness. He had just himself been forgiven for when he saw the glory of God, he said, I am an unclean man. I live in a people of uncleanness. And God sent a message of forgiveness to him, a coal from the altar that touched his lips that He was a man forgiven. He knew the message was about forgiveness. He saw the crucified Messiah. But then in seeing the crucified Messiah, he saw the message that would never be believed. It's a message of forgiveness, but it's also a message of human sinfulness and blindness and willfulness. God would save the world by human evil killing his son. And until the world executed him, there was no saving the world. Until the judgment on sin had been fulfilled in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, there could be no forgiveness. There could be no rescue. So God could not open their eyes and enliven their hearts because then they would not have fulfilled his plan to save the world by the death of his own son. So then it's not their fault. They couldn't help it. They were just God's puppets. No, no, no. They chose what they did. They chose to do what they did according to their own intention and will. It's just that God didn't step in and intervene and stop them. He let them do their thing. It was his plan, his predicted plan, his Prophetic word didn't enlighten them or change them. His prophetic word just confirmed their sinfulness, confirmed sinful people in their sinful action. Come on, parents, haven't you noticed that there are some times when you tell your children that they shouldn't do something that it just seems to goad them into trying it, doesn't it? But the more you make it clear that it is what you do not want to happen, the more they would like to find out what is going to happen when it does happen and why shouldn't they do it. That is, the heart that is unwilling to submit 
finds commands irksome and will carry out rebellion even to death. The commands, the hearts that are willing to submit find that the commands of God are life. How you think of the command of God has to do with your willingness to submit, doesn't it? For those who are willing to submit to God, his word telling us what to do is a joy and a delight. But for those who do not want God but want to run their own lives their own way, then God's words are a goad to prompt me to do more and more stupid things because I'm not going to give in to him. I'm going to do what I want to do. doesn't matter how much it hurts me. Why wouldn't they believe? Back in chapter 3 we've been told in verses 19 and 20, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Jesus comes as the light. But not everybody wants the light. People who are going to be exposed by the light step back into the shadows. Seeing signs, seeing miraculous signs will not help sinful people deal with evil. It will not bring people to belief. What belief it does bring will be phony belief, hearing but not keeping the word kind of belief. So in verse 42 of our passage today, you'll see at that time many, even among the leaders, did believe, but they didn't really believe. They didn't have real belief. Not with a belief that will take up its cross and follow him, not with the hatred of the life in this world that Jesus is required earlier in the chapter, verses 25, 26. Look back there for a moment, 25. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and wherever I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Jesus goes to the cross. He is going to his death. He says, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you must come with me. If you love your life in this world, you will lose it. If you hate your life now, you will save it. If you're not willing to enter into Jesus' death, you will not enter into the life that he wins for you. Now, these people wouldn't believe in a way like that. They've seen miracles. They're persuaded, they're convinced, but they're not convinced in heart and mind. So verse 42, you'll notice they believe in him, but they won't confess him. They won't confess their faith in him. And why won't they confess? Verse 42, because they're afraid. They're afraid of the Pharisees. They're afraid of expulsion from the synagogue. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Sometimes, some places in our world today, people who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are persecuted physically. They are put in prison and they are being executed. 
There are countries around the world where it is happening and happening frequently. It has happened in our century under, under uh, fascists in Germany and under communists in Russia and in China. It is happening now quite frequently in Muslim countries. That is the character of it. But for many of us, we live in countries like Australia and like France where we are not likely to be thrown in prison and we are not likely to be executed, but yet we are likely to get what the Pharisees got, what the Pharisees gave, rather. That is expulsion. You just get dropped off the family Christmas list. You just get excluded from certain jobs. You just get dropped out of the social life that is at the office. You just get treated as an oddity at the local P&C or in the local schoolyard as you come to pick up your children after school. You just get dropped at work as somebody who's a bit of a, a crank, a bit of an extremist. You get called a, a cultist. You get, here is the enlightened community. Here is the open-minded community of secularism. They will not talk with us about what the truth is. It is much easier to label us, to discriminate by marginalising. All Christians are red-necked, stupid, Bible-believing, fundamentalists. You do not have to listen to what they have to say. It's preferable if you don't. They're just stupid. Which, of course, means that I'm not, because I'm not one of them. And so we get excluded it can be from a lot of reasons, can't it? You can get excluded because the harshness of their lives cannot relate to the fact of people who will live in the gentleness of ours. It can be because we are a rebuke to them and their sense of guilt. It can be that we are disassociating ourselves from the family traditions. It is so hard sometimes for those of us who have come from a religion, whatever that religion may be, to accept Jesus Christ because to accept Jesus Christ is to be disloyal to the family religion, the family tradition. Even the family religion and tradition that the family hasn't gone to for a long time. I was staying with some friends in Brisbane at the mission two weeks ago and it was fascinating. And lovely, lovely young woman had become a Christian she was about to marry. Her parents insisted that she should be marrying in their church. But they didn't go to church. They hadn't been to church for several years. But she, being a Christian, did not want to get married in the church that never taught her the gospel. She was, had left and departed from that denomination which she felt really didn't uphold the Lord Jesus Christ at all. But for the family, this was a matter of profound betrayal she was betraying the family even though the family didn't practice the religion that she was betraying even though she had found the truth elsewhere and was more than happy to share it with them but they weren't interested in the truth they were interested in family solidarity it put tremendous pressure on this young woman would she break with her family just for the sake of the truth that she had discovered in the gospel or would she conform to family pressure for fear of losing the relationships which 
are indeed God-created and so important and natural to us all. Our Greek Bible Fellowship is meeting at the moment and within our Greek Bible Fellowship more than 50% of those who gather there Sunday by Sunday, a hundred or so of them over in Croydon, more than 50% of them have been excluded from their families as a result of becoming Christian. It is a hard cost for some people to bear. There are many, many others that we have met with over the years who have known that Jesus is the truth but who have not been willing to bear the exclusion from their family. And so I've held back from that truth and said, no, I'm not going to join up with you because I couldn't bear being cut off. That is the problem Jesus is facing here. It's as old as Jesus. But for fear of being put out of the synagogue. And notice verse 43 explains it even more for us. It's a matter of love. It's not just fear. Theirs was the love of the praise of men rather than the praise of God. They were seeking the glory of men rather than the glory of God. They loved man more than God. Back in chapter 5, Jesus has said much the same thing. Verse 41, 541, I don't accept praise from men, said Jesus, but I know you, I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in, my own, in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Whose praise matters to you? Whose honour matters to you? Whose love and acceptance matters to you? Is it humans? Or is it God's? Which one can matter? You think you love God? You think you would accept the Son of God should he come and the Saviour of the God should he come? If you love the praise of humans, you will never accept the Son of God. You'll always compromise. You will always sell out. They loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God and therefore they wouldn't confess Jesus. Therefore, they couldn't believe in Jesus. So these people hear the word of God. They know it's true, they believe it's true, but they don't believe in him and will be condemned by the words that they heard. Well, what of us? Why would we reject Jesus? Well, there's lots of reasons that we may reject Jesus. But there are several reasons here in this passage that are important. Are we any different to these people or are we the same as them? Well, we're not in the same position. You and I haven't seen the miracles. That makes it harder for us to believe? No, not at all. In fact, we're in a position of making it easier to believe because we live after Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the Old Testament word of God illuminated by the coming of the Holy Spirit by the death and resurrection of Jesus, by the gospel word, we have the advantage of hindsight. We know what it's about and what, it, what... We have the word of the Father made clearer. No, no, it's easier for us. Well, then are we in the same position as theirs? Yes, we are in the same position. If we do evil deeds, then we will want to hide from the light. 
If we love men's praise, then that will make us fearful of what other people think about us. And so we won't want to find the truth that is in the Lord Jesus Christ because we don't want to become unpopular. We won't want to be excluded. We won't want to be laughed at and ridiculed. If we love men's praise, then we will not be ultimately interested in what God thinks of us. The fear of men's exclusion will quieten our tongue from confessing Christ, even if we know it's true. People so often know the truth is in Jesus, but hold back from bringing their life to him, bringing their sin to him. They're embarrassed by what they have done and wouldn't want anybody else to know. They're ashamed of their actions. They're afraid of other people's reactions to them. And so the words of our Saviour become the words of our condemnation. How sad that God should send his Son into the world to save us. And that action of sending the Son into the world to save us should become our condemnation. because we're afraid of what others will think about us because we don't really care what God thinks about us because our own deeds are evil friends don't let what other people think of you or may think of you deter you from getting right with God I know relationships can be very painful when they go sour and I don't, we don't need any more reasons for having soured relationships in our fractured society than we've got already. But don't let other people's attitude towards you turn you aside from a moment for living by what you know to be true. Come out into the light. Find the salvation that Jesus died to bring you. For that is what he did. And that is what he will do for you. There are dreadful things that we have done, aren't there? There are things that we are rightly ashamed of. But they are the very things for which Jesus died to liberate us from. Bring them to the light and let God deal with them. Don't hide them from the very source of their salvation. The prayer I'm going to lead us in is a prayer that is very general. But I'm going to give you a little time as I pray it to make it specific and personal. I'm going to give you time to say to God the very things that you know are so wrong in you. And then when we finish praying, can I ask you all to turn to that card and fill it in and spend a moment talking to you about what to do with the things you've prayed about. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.